Good morning and welcome to our Sunday service. We love how much our family's grown in this online space. Where are you joining us from? Let us know in the comment section. And in today's service, Neil will talk about the significance of communion to us as believers. We'll respond to this message by sharing communion at the end of the service, so please get your elements ready. But right now, let's open our hearts to receive God's presence in worship. Jesus. Lay those things before the Lord and say, yes, Lord, I receive your goodness. I receive your faithfulness. I receive your promises. I'm saying yes to you and you alone. Saying yes. We're saying yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes. 
yes, Lord, we believe in you. We believe in you and we say yes to you and your promises. Thank you, Jesus.
breaking the darkness It's bringing the light to soften To soften the heart of stone Your love is alive It's breaking the darkness And winning the fight And bringing the Thank you, Lord, that we are home with you. Oh, you're so good to us, Lord. Even when we don't see it sometimes, even when we don't feel it sometimes, you are there and you move among us.
Lord if we make our bed in the darkest place in the lowest place you are there Lord when we go up to the highest mountain you are there but when it comes to you Lord we bow before you we bow before your majesty because you are worthy of all our praise and all our honor Cry. 
Jesus, we thank you that you are the only one who is worthy. Thank you that our prayers can rise to you at any time of the day and all night long. You are the worthy one. Lord, as we prepare in our hearts to give what you've purposed for us, would you prompt us to what you would like us to contribute and give today? We acknowledge, Lord, that you gave first and that we can never outgive your generosity. So thank you that you gave first, Lord, and as we respond in worship, as we respond in love to you, with our offerings of thanks and with our tithes that we pay today. Thank you, Father, for your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as we make some time in our service to give to the Lord, won't you prepare what the Lord has prompted you to give? Uh, the necessary banking details will come up on the screens. You're welcome to use the QR code or take down the banking details for electronic transfer. And thank you as always for your abundant generosity as you serve, Lord, serve the Lord and worship Him in this way. So have you ever wondered about the, the what and the why of communion? I'm sure if you've been in church for a while or even if you're just new to church, you might have heard about communion or Holy Communion. Have you ever wondered what it means and, and why we do it in, in, the, in the way we practice it at the moment? And so today's sermon is going to be a lot about, it's going to be about communion. And perhaps you know about communion and you've studied it out and you've practiced it for many years. But let's trust the Lord together to refresh us, to remind us of just this foundational and fundamental practice that we have in our Christian faith. So Pastor Louis concluded last week with our Say Yes to Jesus series. And today we're going to specifically focus on communion before we start our, I think it's going to be a very significant series next Sunday. And so the title of my message today is Communion, what we have received from the Lord. Communion, what we have received from the Lord. So you may have heard as we talk in church circles about the sacraments or the sacrament of communion or the ordinance is another word that sometimes gets used. And I actually thought just to speak a little bit about that, I went to uh, the Webster's Dictionary online and they say that a sacrament is a, is a Christian rite, it's a practice that is ordained by Christ and is, uh, is held to be a means of divine grace or a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. Now, uh, that felt a little complicated to me, so I kind of tried to condense it just into a shorter phrase, which is always dangerous when you try to simplify things. But perhaps for our purposes, if we think of a sacrament for today, we can talk about a symbolic practice with a spiritual intent or effect. A sacrament or an ordinance is a symbolic practice of our faith with a spiritual intent or effect. And in churches like Hatfield, we actually believe in two sacraments, so charismatic evangelical churches. We believe in believer's baptism. When someone comes to faith in Christ, part of how they express that faith is they go into the waters of baptism. So believer's baptism is one. And then the other one is the communion, which we're going to be speaking about today. Sometimes we also talk about the Lord's Supper or the, or the table of the Lord. Um, I'm aware that many of you watching come from different church traditions and different backgrounds. And so Perhaps if you're from the Roman Catholic background, you'd be more familiar with the term Eucharist, which is probably in its practice a little bit different from what we do. We want to just focus on the, on the core biblical elements when we talk about practicing communion. 
And so communion was practiced by Jesus, it was instituted by Jesus at the Last Supper, and it's something that's very clear for us that was practiced by the early church as well. So if you want to read about communion uh, in the gospel accounts when it actually happened, uh, we, you can find it recorded in Matthew chapter 26 from verse 17 to 29. Uh, you find it also in Mark chapter 14 from verse 12 to 25. Now Matthew and Mark, they kind of, they're quite similar in how they describe the, the, the Last Supper and the communion. Uh, you also find it recorded for us in Luke chapter 22 from verse 7 to 20. These are the original accounts of Jesus recording it. Uh, communion, the actual breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine is not recorded specifically in the Gospel of John. But actually in John, all the way from about chapter 13, we have this extended dialogue of the discussions that took place around that last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. It happened to also have been a Passover meal at that time. So Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke 22. Those are the, the foundational scriptures for this. Uh, however, I've chosen today just to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so if you have a Bible or a device, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 so long. Um, I wanted to look at this practice because it reflects for us how communion was practiced in the early church. Uh, this passage shows us also how Paul uh, applies the specific practice of communion to a problem that was happening in Corinth. And so let's turn to the text and let's read together from 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to read verse 23 to 26, which is kind of the, the core formula or the core descriptor of what happens in communion. And so I'm going to read the passage through once, as, as I normally do, and then we'll break it up and talk a little bit about the different elements that are referred to in this passage. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, from verse 23 to 26, I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, the NIV. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the, the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, Take this cup, uh, th sorry, this cup, sorry, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May the Lord bless the, the reading of his word in our lives. And so Paul starts in verse 23 and he says, this is something I received from Jesus, probably uh, not directly from Jesus, but as it was passed down of the traditions of what Jesus did and said as he learnt from the other believers at his time. Uh, this is about what Jesus has done for us. What? Jesus has done, what we have received from Jesus. Uh, it also shows us in the early church that the Jesus tradition, what Jesus did and said, was perpetuated, it was carried on, it was taught from one believer to another, and had become communion, a common practice in the church in Corinth. This was something that they were already doing, something they were familiar with. Paul's not yet teaching them about something new. And this practice has carried on, it has been perpetuated through all the believing church, through all the ages since Jesus instituted it. So let's spend some time talking a little bit about the meaning of communion, the meaning and the practice of communion. Obviously, as this tradition is passed on, the early church believers, the apostles, the leaders, had kind of distilled it into you know, the essentials. And so for me, it's actually 
quite important every bit that they chose to include. It's, like the, it's not like they would have included something that was superfluous, something that was redundant or unnecessary. And so this formula always starts with this phrase, on the night Jesus was betrayed. This is the context that we read about that this meal happened in. And I think it's good for us to think about Jesus in that moment. He's sitting with men he'd walked with for three, three and a half years, men and women were probably present that he knows well. And he wants to institute something that's going to be lasting, something that is important that they will remember. But as he's doing this, he knows that Judas, the betrayer, is in the room with him. He knows that that night he's going to be arrested, that he's going to be abused and tortured, and the next day he's going to be crucified and die. Jesus knows this. Imagine for the early disciples as they remember this phrase on the night that Jesus was betrayed. They were betrayed by one of their own. They would all later scatter. They would all remember their betrayal of Jesus. Think of ourselves, how we have all been the betrayer and betrayed. We've all betrayed God with our sin. Perhaps we've betrayed others, whether in thought or in deed. And I'm sure most of us have ex had the experience of being betrayed, where perhaps even just our expectations of another or of a situation weren't met. This deep feeling of betrayal. On the night Jesus was betrayed. Then it says that Jesus took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. And this act of taking, thanking, and breaking seems to have been quite a pattern in Jesus' life. Uh, Henry Nouwen does a great teaching on this called The Life of the Beloved. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube, uh, where he breaks down these elements of this pattern that Jesus set. It's significant for me, too, that when Jesus walks after his resurrection with the believers on the Emmaus Road, they don't recognize him. And then when they sit down to have the meal together, it's when he takes the bread, gives thanks, and break it that their eyes are open. So this seems to have been a very common pattern. And in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as we read about this, this is a very distinct pattern that he's laid out for us. But Jesus takes this bread and he gives thanks. This is phenomenal for me that Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed, but he still is able to give thanks for the grace of God in that space. There's an interesting Greek word that's used here in the way it's used in 1 Corinthians 11. It's eucharistesis, but the, the root word is eucharisteo. Uh, rooted around or packed around this word of charis, which is the Greek word for grace. And so there's this idea that as Jesus gives thanks, he's, he's offering up grace. He's thanking God for the grace, not only for the provision of the bread and the provision of the fellowship that's around him, but on the night Jesus is betrayed, he's thankful. I haven't been thankful the times that I've been betrayed. I haven't had probably very little gratitude in my heart. But this is the awesomeness of Jesus, that he thanks God for this gift of grace. And he takes it and he breaks the bread. He's grateful for the provision of God. Now, what does the, the breaking of the bread symbolize for us? And here it's often helpful to go to the Old Testament and look at a passage like Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the passage about the suffering servant. And it speaks there prophetically about what would happen to Jesus in the next couple of hours with his crucifixion and his, and his death. And particularly verse 5 in Isaiah 53 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed or bruised for our sins. 
and that the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him. So it speaks about this, the substitutory, sorry, substitutionary nature of the sacrifice of Christ. And so the breaking speaks of the breaking, breaking and the death of Jesus, the breaking of Jesus' body, the suffering that he took in his body for us. It's the paying the penalty for our sins, for our transgressions. So the breaking symbolizes the suffering and the death of Jesus. And then Jesus breaks the bread and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Awesome. Jesus knows that the pain and the suffering, the sacrifice, some of the vivid descriptions that are in the rest of Isaiah 53 are about to be heaped on him. But he did it for us. Another way to say this is he did it with you in mind. He did it with us in mind. This was not for himself. It was for us. And so as Jesus finishes taking, thanking, and breaking the bread, he then also takes the cup. And there it obviously speaks of the content of the cup, which would have been some form of wine in Jesus' day. We use grape juice as the symbol. And he says that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Why was it important that blood was shed? Because the pattern that God sets in the Old Testament is that blood is the sign of the covenant. Blood kind of seals the covenant. There's a picture of this in uh, Exodus 24, around verse 8, where God has made the covenant with the nation of Israel, and then Moses takes blood and he sprinkles it on the nation, and that settles the covenant. It seals the covenant. It also means that sometimes death is necessary to establish the covenant. But yet Jesus talks about the new covenant. It's a new covenant in his blood. And this is not a new idea. This is something that the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31. You can read from it about from verse 31 to 33. But this is the covenant where Jeremiah says God will relate differently from people from that point onwards. The, the sacrificial death of Jesus brings in a new covenant. A covenant where, as Jeremiah puts it, he says, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. The law of God won't be this external thing encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. It will be written on our minds. It will be put in our minds and written on our hearts. Jeremiah goes on and he says, and I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the fundamental promise of the Testament of God. This is my body, which is for you. Take this cup. It's established the sign of the new covenant that God will write his laws on our hearts is established at the death of Jesus. Now, what's also significant in this passage is that both when Jesus spoke about the bread and the cup, he says to do, us, to do this in remembrance of him. So that's part of the command that this communion is a practice we should continue. But as I was preparing, I, I, you know, just for perhaps one of the first times I focused in on this word remembrance. And as I was reading up on it a little bit, the, the commentators say that this is more, this remembrance is more than just a, a mental ascent. This is more than just going, I know that this happened, or I agree that it's historically true, or I remember that Jesus did this for me. And the, and the best way I can try and illustrate it is this remembrance speaks a lot more about the significance, not just that Jesus did it, but it's the significance of what he did, his significance over sin, his significance of his victory over sin, the significance of his victory over death, and then its application in our lives. And so to try and illustrate this, I want to maybe try two different ways. Um, I've always knew, uh, even when I was younger, I knew about World War II, primary school age. I'd heard about World War II, um, probably read one or two little uh, elementary books on it. 
uh, in terms of what was required for world history at that time at school. But I remember that World War II happened. It's, it was factual to me. But I also had the situation in my family where my paternal grandfather had actually fought in World War II. He'd spent some time in North Africa, I was involved with the Battle of Al Alamein, and then also a little bit of time in Italy, as, as far as I could drag it out of him. And I remember on one of the occasions when, when he visited, he actually said, well, you know, I was part of World War II. And he, he shared, you know, what I just said, I was in North Africa and Al Alamein and, and Italy. And then he kind of got a bit lost, like he, you could see he was captured in his own thoughts. He was remembering World War II. He was remembering his lived experience, not just the fact that it happened, but the fact, the, the significance of it in his life, the change that it had brought about in his life. My grandfather never said much more than that about World War II, but it changed it a bit for me when I understood that someone I knew had personally lived through it. Perhaps another example from that same era, World War II, uh, some of you, perhaps many of you would have seen the, the series called Band of Brothers. I think it was originally brought out by HBO. Um, but it's a story of the, one of the airborne regiments that fought in World War II and they, how they often would get dropped behind enemy lines and have to fight these battles and things like that. And so uh, the series takes you through the story of these, what became a band of brothers, men who fought together and went through the Battle of Bastogne and, and different things like that. And the series was very interesting. And then one of the days when I uh, uh, was jumping down one of the YouTube uh, rabbit holes that we tend to do. I know, I know you never do it. It just happens to me on occasion. But uh, I came across some interviews on YouTube with the men who were actually part of that battalion, were part of the, the, that airborne regiment in the war. And uh, they, they interview the, the leader. His name was Richard Winters. They, they interview him and they interview some of the other soldiers who'd, who'd lived through the real world version of that TV series. And it changed because when they remember it, they remembered a lived experience. And I think that's a little bit what this is, what is intended by the text, both in the Gospels and here in Corinthians. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's not just remembering the fact of what happened, but it's remembering the significance of the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection in our lives. When the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus became effectual, came into effect in our lives. Remember the day when you gave your life to Christ, when you were born again, when you decided to repent of your sins, stopped living for yourself and started living for Christ. Remember the significance of the death of Jesus in your life, the significance, the change that that made in your life, the personal application, the lived experience of having Jesus in our lives, being beneficiaries of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we remember the significance of Jesus' death universally for all mankind, but we remember the significance also personally. And so there is this element where we consider the past. But the text also says, as Jesus talks, he says that when you eat and you drink the cup like this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so there's also this future element in our proclamation. Uh, the significance of Jesus' death in our lives into the future, because I met Jesus on a certain day and I remember him now, how is that going to affect how I live into the future? How will that be applied in my life? It also speaks to the fact that in my life, the gospel is proclaimed, the good news that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. And what that means is proclaimed through my life 
and in my life as well. We also proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this is part of us as a community being what's called an eschatological community. Eschaton is about the end. We are a community that's, that lives for the end. We live for the return of Christ. It conditions how we think about this world. It conditions how we live our lives now, that Jesus will one day return. Not only to fetch us, but also to, for us to give an account of how we have lived. And so when we eat and drink the communion elements, where there's also a proclamation that speaks to how the effect that Jesus' life is going to have on as I go forward, how it's going to condition the choices I make and the way I live and what I do. Just a comment on this matter of communion. Um, uh, about a year ago, just more than a year ago now, in fact, it was the 1st of, 1st of March 2020, just before South Africa went into hard lockdown, we were privileged here at Hatfield to have Pastor Dan Backens from uh, Virginia Beach in the USA come and share with us live. Imagine guest speakers coming live. Good old days, maybe. Uh, but he came and he shared with us, and he'd actually done some uh, PhD, doctoral level uh, degree on, on, this, uh, on, the, on, the, on, on communion. And he shared a message with us called Eucharist, the portals of grace. And I would encourage you, you can search for it on our YouTube channel. I found it most easily by searching for the name, the Eucharist, Portals of Grace, and he really unpacked some additional elements about communion. But as his title uh, indicates, he also added this dimension for me in my understanding of communion, about that communion is a portal or a means. It's a way that, gr that we can encounter grace. In fact, he, as I was going through my notes that I'd made of the sermon that day, uh, one of the things he said, now, this is the way I wrote it. I don't know if he said it this way, word for word. But as I recorded it, I wrote it like this. I said, it's communion is an encounter with Christ's personal presence through material or natural elements, through the, through the bread and through the wine. There's an opportunity, there's a portal where I can encounter Christ as I needed him. And so when we practice communion, when we celebrate communion and we take the bread and we drink the cup, we're also engaging, it's a symbolic act, if you remember, that has spiritual significance and effect. We are opening a portal of grace to connect with God through the elements of communion in our lives. And so that's a little bit about the meaning and a little bit about the practice of communion. But as we read on in the text in 1 Corinthians 11, we also see that there's a warning in the text and we need to take note of this warning. And so let's talk a little bit about the warning in the text. Let's read it first. It's 1 Corinthians 11 verse 27 to 29. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29. Paul writes to this Corinthian community. He's just reminded them of the essence, of the fundamental. This is what it's really about. Now he turns to, to them and he says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of Jesus. That speaks about the sacrifice. Of Jesus. You'll be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread or drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, what's going on here? And so this unworthy manner needs some textual context. We need to read a little bit wider. And I'm not going to read the verses. I'm going to describe it for you and tell you what happened. But it's, if you go back to verse 17 in chapter 11, it actually starts uh, where Paul starts addressing this matter. 
And so what was common in Corinth, and it seems to have been in many of the early churches at that time, is that their communion was a, a meal that they shared. It was a shared meal. This is very different from what we practice. We practice just the core elements. Now, probably when Jesus did the Passover meal, the breaking of the bread would have happened at one point in the meal, and then after the meal, the, the sharing of the cup would have happened. And there's a debate among scholars if, if that's how the early church practiced it or if they had their meals together and then did the bread and the wine together. Uh, and I'm not clever enough to resolve that debate amongst the scholars. But I, when we practice it, we do it together. But what is different in the Corinthian situation is that they had a meal. And what we read from verse 17 onwards is that Paul's not happy with the way they're practicing this fellowship meal and the way they're engaging in what he earlier in chapter 10 refers to as the table of the Lord. And what was essentially happening is that their practice of this meal was reinforcing divisions within the church. Now, if we read from chapter 4 in Corinthians, there was a problem of divisions in the church, but this meal was enforcing divisions in a different way. What appeared to happen is they would gather at someone's house, probably a person of influence, wealth, or means, because they had space to host the meal. And then those who could be there on time, the advantage, those who had, could dictate their own schedules, would meet and they would start eating. And then those who were disadvantaged, in this case, those perhaps couldn't control their own time, perhaps general workers or slaves, they had to wait to be released by their masters, they would come. And by the time they got there, all the food had been eaten. And Paul, uh, hopefully it's hyperbole, he says that some go hungry and others get drunk. And so he, he doesn't like this because what the Corinthian church is doing is they're taking a normal practice from their culture and their society. That was how meals were done. The advantage, the inner circle would get the best food, they would eat first, and then the disadvantage might even be in a different dining room and they would get something else or eat second. That was a normal cultural practice. And obviously, socioeconomic divisions were very entrenched in the first century world. And what upsets Paul is that they're negating what Jesus has done. Jesus has come to establish a new community. He's come to establish the body of Christ. And in this new community, Things that are normal in the culture around them shouldn't be perpetuated. This matter of socioeconomic division, Paul says, shouldn't be perpetuated in the church at Corinth. And so their meal is kind of missing the intent of part of what Jesus did to come and establish the body of Christ, a new community where traditional distinctions like male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile no longer apply. He talks about this in Galatians 3, for example. That's the essence of what Paul believes Jesus was doing is he not only died for my sin personally, but he also came to establish a new community, which we call the church. And so Paul corrects him and, and his solution, if you read in verse 33 and 34, is just wait for everybody to get there. Love one another well. Consider the others and the reality of their life situations before you come together. So specifically in Corinth, when Paul says when you're eating in an unworthy manner, he's meaning that they're not considering the significance of what Jesus has done by dismissing others who come late. They're not loving their neighbor as well. And so today we don't genuinely share a meal around communion, although I know there's watch parties happening across the city of Pretoria and, and hopefully in some other cities where you're watching, you've invited some friends to join you. And I know what sometimes happens is everyone kind of has a meal together with the watch parties. Not all of them, but sometimes. And there's a bit of a bring and share that happens. And so that's probably closer to what's happening in Corinth. But I know from being at Hatfield now for many years, we have a generous community. I remember as a student when the, the, the community group, it was called a cell group then that I was part of, when they would arrange to get together for a meal, 
Uh, the cell leaders would always say to us, the community group leaders would always say to us, don't worry, we've got you. We just, you always want to hear when you're a student, somebody else is taking care of the food and somebody else is going to feed you. But I'm aware you know, that's our community here at Hatfield's marked by that kind of hospitality, that kind of gener generosity. And so when we think of the unworthy manner, there's this horizontal element, this manward, this humanward element of loving our neighbors, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ that becomes part of the picture because of the situation in Corinth. But the text clearly says we ought to examine ourselves to make sure we're not separated from God by our sin. And if there's willful or unconfessed sin in our life, communion is a portal of grace to say, God, I'm sorry, I've missed the mark. I've missed what you wanted me to do, forgive me. Perhaps you've backslid and you've turned away from Christ. Communion is an opportunity to repent and to, and to say sorry and to encounter the grace of God in your life again. But it's also to examine that we're not divided from one another as well. You need to examine yourself. You need to take up personal ownership and responsibility at this part to ensure that you're not negating the sacrifice of Christ. In verse 29, Paul speaks about discerning the body of Christ. And, and, and later in the verse, and I think there he's specifically talking about the Corinthian situation with how do we love our neighbors well. And so to ensure as we examine ourselves that we're not perpetuating worldly patterns into the church, we're not taking debates and issues from the world and baptizing them into the church and trying to solve them by the same manner and means. You know, it's interesting for me, uh, perhaps this discerning the body of Christ can even be about personal offense. If I carry an offense towards somebody else that's part of the body of Christ or not, I need to settle it there in the communion space. You, you repent and you forgive and you intend then to go and do what you can to restore relationship as part of this communion process because we're making room for the grace of God in our lives. You know, so often for me as, as I look at the issues in the world, it's like the world seeks to divide. Everything's becoming increasingly divided, identity politics and uh, in issues of justice and, and gender and all these things. There's more and more categories of division that are being created. But I believe in the body of Christ, the Christian community, we should seek to unite, to bring people together as under the Lordship of Christ. What we have in common is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We aim to unite. I have a friend who's uh, he's busy with a master's thesis and he's, he's looking at you know, how does the church engage with matters of justice and things like that. And I'm so encouraged because he's not starting with the debate as it's defined by worldly patterns, he's gone to scripture and he talks about humility and service and sacrifice as elements of dealing with injustice in the Christian community. He's got a great phrase, he says, we need radical kinship and boundless compassion. Radical kinship and boundless compassion. Now, he's still writing his thesis, so I can't wait to see how that's fleshed out and what it means. But in the church, we unite, we have kinship, we have fellowship with one another. And there's generosity that takes place. I know also that's a part of what our young adults are busy discussing and engaging with. And so if you're a young adult, it's a good space to jump in to see what does it mean to be a, the community of Christ, this radical kinship, this community of humility and service that can change the world, that brings people together and not divides people. And so when we discern the body of Christ, we must make sure that we're not negating the grace of Christ in our lives but also not through our lives as well. And the warning ends here as Paul talks about a, a matter of 
judgment. And he prophetically discerns that some people in Corinth are experiencing real world effects of them not taking part of the body of, and the blood of Jesus, uh, the communion, communion elements of this in a worthy manner. And he speaks specifically to them and he says, that's why some of you are sick and some have died because you haven't practiced this as the body of Christ ought to. Now he's very clearly not talking about eternal judgments, he's talking about temporal judgments, judgments in time at this place. And so there's real world consequences if we engage in a sacrament, in something Jesus ordained and instituted, a spiritual practice with a spiritual significance in an unworthy manner. So let's move to applying the word of God here today. What have we received from the Lord? We've received a sacrifice that's based on grace. We can't deserve it. We can't afford it. We cannot earn it. And so we can never talk about cheap grace. We've received a sacrifice that reconciles, a sacrifice that restores relationship with God and with one another. You know, when I think of communion, I always think of John chapter 1, verse 16. In the, in the more literal translations, like the ESV, it says, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. And I, I love that turn of phrase. I know some of the other translations talk about it a bit differently, grace multiplied by grace and things. But when I think of communion, it's a time when I celebrate and I thank God for grace upon grace that has become real in my lives. And so as we turn now to, to partake of communion, and if you can, you can get the, the elements, some grape juice or, or whatever you prefer, and bread together. And let's think Godwardly in the vertical dimension. I think we're pretty familiar with this. Let's make sure there's no sin, nothing that separates us from God, unconfessed sin in our lives. But let's also consider the horizontal aspect and discern the broader body of Christ. So examine yourself. Today we're going to share in the table of the Lord, a table of restoration, a table of grace, or as Pastor Dan Bacon said, a portal of grace. And so won't you come expectantly to encounter Christ and the grace of God in a new way, in a real way, perhaps like you've never have before. You know, when we think of the bread and the wine, the, the elements of communion, they're not magical in and of themselves. And I'm concerned when I listen to some Christians talking and they've developed this magical view of communion, that you know, if they participate in this, something magic will happen. I don't think communion's magical. I think it's supernatural. I think it's a supernatural encounter with Christ where we meet the grace of God in our lives and where these elements represent the broken body of Jesus and the new covenant that he established in his blood. There's a supernatural encounter, a supernatural grace that can come on our lives. So come expectant today. What grace do you need to experience in your life today? Do you need a savior? Do you need to encounter Christ and, and get your sins forgiven? Repent, turn to Christ and come to the table of grace. Do you need a redeemer? And yeah, and I sense, I mean, someone who needs to restore. Perhaps you've lost. There's areas within you, there's areas within your family, within your relationships that need a redeemer. They need to be redeemed. They need to be restored. Come to the table of grace today. Do you need a healer? Are you physically not well, mentally not well, spiritually lacking? Come to the table of grace and be healed today. Do you need a king? Do you need someone to proclaim authoritatively in your life the blessing of God or the will of God or the plan of God for your life? Come to the table today. Do you need the creator? 
than one who can create something out of nothing. Perhaps you've lost a business. You've lost a relationship. You're wrestling with a problem. Innovation is needed. Come to the table of grace today. Do you need a comforter? And in this time of COVID, everyone's experienced loss, whether near or far. We've all lost. We all need a comforter. Come to the table today. If you need a heavenly father who will love you more than you can ever imagine, come to the table of grace today. And so we're going to turn our attention now to taking communion together. And so we come to the table today to share communion together, our communion, our fellowship, our common fellowship together. And thank you to the team here at the church that's put together these elements of the bread and the wine for us. And so please get ready at your home. And remember, you can always just pause on the recording if you need to. And I'm sure the pastors who are facilitating the watch parties here on site will make some time after the service, uh, after this recording, at least for us to practice the communion together. Um, but I'm going to kind of do this in recording time or, or TV time. Um, I don't know how many people you've got to share with and, and how long it will take. And so I'm going to make some time, but remember to always that you can just pause and then when you're done with the bread and everyone's had opportunity to partake of the bread, you can press play again and then we can carry on with the wine. And so let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for this sacrament, for this holy practice that you've ordained for us where we can remember the Lord's death until he comes. We can remember and we can proclaim. Thank you for your sacrifice. And we pause to remember when that sacrifice became real in our lives, when the grace of God became real in our lives. We remember, we remember, we remember, Lord. And so the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. Thank you, Jesus, for your broken body. Thank you, Jesus, that you brought peace when I deserved punishment, that you died in my place. And so take the bread and share it amongst yourselves. Let's eat, join in eating the bread together, symbolic of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when you're ready, why don't you take the cup? And Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a symbol of my new covenant where God will write his laws, put his laws in our minds and write them on our hearts. And he will be our God and, and we will be our people. And so Jesus, thank you that your blood was shed to establish a new covenant, a new way to meet with God and to be restored into relationship with God. Thank you for your sacrifice for us. Father, thank you for your presence with us as we have shared in the elements of communion. Where we need grace in our lives, won't you come and give the grace that is needed in the measure that is needed. 
For from your fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We pray just a continued experience of the grace and the goodness of God for you in the week ahead. May the Lord be with you. Do you long for a deeper connection to our church than just joining us on Sundays? Volunteering is a great way to grow within a community of like-minded people while serving in your area of passion. And there are so many opportunities to serve here at Hatfield. And as Hatfield's volunteer coordinator, I'd like to help you find a space that aligns with your passion and availability. You can join my team and I behind the sound desk or add your talents to our teams in the music ministry, camera operation, computer graphics or social media. So contact me, Gillian, at volunteering at hatfield.co.za and we'll match you, your talents and passions with serving in our church and bringing God's kingdom to hearts, homes and beyond. Do you like the idea of running for a good cause? Join the Love Running Club in a virtual run to raise awareness and funds for cancer. Born out of our young adults ministry in 2010, Love Running is a community of runners who strive to make a positive difference in their front line of a running lifestyle. The virtual race takes place between 13 and 15 May with the options to walk or run in the 5, 10 or 21 kilometer category. Visit the Love Running website on screen now for more details on the race, such as costs. Mums, you've been doing such an excellent job of wearing many different hats in your home and workspaces. We want to honor and celebrate you. Being a mom is a full-time gig and you don't always get a pat on the back for a job well done. But we want to say, Hats off to you. Please join us on site on 9 May or at one of our in-person watch parties hosted by our pastors where we'll have a special gift for you from all of us. Well, that's all the announcements we have for today. So have a blessed week, everybody. Bye. Bye.